0: Welcome to the Thinking Podcast. This is your host, Jeffrey Wu, with my co-host, Dr. Manuel Lamb. And we're really excited to have Gary Taubs, who I think is one of the most prominent science writers in our generation today, really changing how we as a society think about nutrition, metabolism, and some of the, I would say, mythology of of how we live our society. So obviously here at NutriBox and, and at the Thinking Podcast. We're here to think from first principles, uh, re-examine what works, what doesn't work, and figure out how to optimize you know, what we think is the most important system ourselves. Um, so let's dive into it. Happy to have you here, Gary. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Really excited to be talking to you today. Yeah. Um, so I think it's interesting from our arc is that, you know, we started off in the space of nootropics, where how do we get compounds, components that optimize our cognitive function? And that led us into intermittent fasting as an interesting uh, protocol in, in, in terms of enhancing uh, brain derived neurotrophic factor, one of the key elements that increases brain and neuron growth. But one of the most interesting mechanisms behind intermittent fasting is ketosis, uh, starting to use ketone bodies as opposed to glucose or carbohydrates as our uh, core energy uh, fuel source. And that obviously leads into the notion around carbohydrate or glucose restriction and how that might be an interesting way to boost our performance. It seems like, you know, that's sort of our background, on how we are so right. interested in this space. I'm curious to hear from your perspective, how did you go from, I know, you know, being like, you know, someone looking at physics to being a, a writer, you know, looking at cold fusion to now being, I think, one of the leading voices of, hey, like, let's rethink how we think. About metabolism and nutrition yeah okay and what's, your, what's your journey
1: so yeah. well uh you know studied physics but I wasn't any good at it and uh, eventually <laughs> went into journalism because that's where uh my uh, yeah I love I like the idea of investigations I that's what I want to do I like the learning something about the universe that nobody knows, which is what scientists do, but it's also what investigative journalists do. Right. So uh, my first two books were about uh, physicists and then chemists and the cold fusion fiasco who discovered non-existent uh, phenomena. And while writing those books, I'm actually getting, yeah, I'm getting mentored by some exquisite experimental scientists about how hard it is to do science right and all the, the meticulous, rigorous, skeptical skeptical thinking you need to get the right answer. Um, You know, in three of my books, I quote uh, Richard Feynman, great Nobel laureate physicist, saying the first principle of science, you must not fool yourself, and you're the easiest person to fool. So after I came out of the Cold Fusion book, the title of which was Bad Science, um, I had a lot of friends and allies in the physics community said, if you're fascinated with bad science, you should look at some of the stuff in public health. It's terrible. So uh, I started doing that in the early 90s, and they were right. Everything I had learned about how careful and, like I said, rigorous, meticulous you have to be to to, to assure you or to minimize the possibility you don't fool yourself. in public health research was considered... so it's just too hard to do. It was a luxury. It's, you're right. dealing with these messy systems and human beings and chronic diseases and Huge exposures. Sizes. You yeah. can't
0: control like all these people running around. Yeah.
1: Right. And you you have no idea what they're really doing and what right. they're really eating and what whatever the <laughs> variable you're trying to measure exposure to, you you don't know how to do that. So we just can't be that rigorous. And we could assume we're gonna get the right answer anyway, which of course the lesson from my physicists physics days was that Bad scientists and bad science never gets the right answer. <clears throat> Excuse me. So that was it. I in the late 90s I started stumbled into nutrition research. Uh, this controversy over whether salt causes high blood pressure and the data was really. I mean the way I've been phrasing it lately, unless God sat you down personally and and you know swore on his on or his or her honor that salt raised blood pressure and caused hypertension. You'd never actually believe it from a critical look at the data. And that got me into an investigation on dietary fat and heart disease. And so this is going to, what links into this ketosis and carb restriction is from the 1960s onward, our public health establishment was obsessed with answering this question of why why we have so much heart disease in America, and they became focused very early on the cholesterol that's found in atherosclerotic plaques, and they decided because it's there, it's probably causal, and it's related to the fat content of the diet, so this was their obsession and focus. Um, In my first book on this, Good Calories, Bad Calories, I tell this famous sort of story of the drunk in the streetlight, which is I had heard first from physicists, because it's absolutely fundamental uh, how you shouldn't do science. So the idea is a guy's walking down the street, and uh, he comes upon a drunk at night under a street light crawling around on the ground, and he asks the drunk, what are you doing? And the drunk says, I'm looking for my keys. <laughs> and the guy says, is this where you lost the keys? And the drunk said, I don't know where I lost them. This is where the light is. Yeah. Mm. You know. And so in uh modern in the diet related public health community in the second half of the twentieth century the light was cholesterol. That's right. what they could measure. That's what they were obsessed with and dietary fat raised cholesterol. So we end up with this dogma based on that could never be confirmed right. Really in experimental studies that we should eat low fat, low saturated fat diets. Yeah,
0: before we get down into yeah. that, I mean <laughs> long discussion, I'm just curious, like why do you think that just from like a meta level um that you were you know it seemed like you were like you know, the first if not you know one of the first voices looking at like looking at actually the history of how these uh food guidelines and how these like, industrial groups like came together to like create this system like mm. it just seems interesting from meta level that like um i guess it's not surprising where i think people today just sort of just assume that the system has always been the system, and the system is probably right. What but this, like, I'm yeah. curious from a meta level, like what, like, why, why are there so few skeptics that are just like, hey, let's just do the homework and like actually look at you know the, the literature?
1: I mean, I think there's a couple of cultural factors at work. So remember, I grew up in the, I studied physics in college. When you study physics, you learn it with the history attached, right? right. You learn about Maxwell's equations. I mean, equations have names attached to them and, and if you're learning it right they're teaching you what experiments those people did to come up with their equations like what did faraday do what did maxwell do how did you know what did what was the michelson and morley experiment that that showed that there didn't appear to be an ether and right. what what did einstein do and what did he build on and then when we got to quantum mechanics so you kind of learn it historically right so you learn about newton there no, and then there, like there wasn't
0: yeah. these like signposts of like this researcher Definitively prove this law. Yeah,
1: you never learn that, so you always learn
0: the evidence right. also by which we believe what we
1: believe. But right. in medicine and, and public health, you don't have time, especially medicine. I don't right. think you have time for that. There's too much you got to learn, right? right? Too many fields, too many disciplines. Yeah, I, I
2: remember what, just through residency. I think that, um, I think that kind of jumping back in what he's trying to say is like oftentimes when we're in training, when I was okay. in med school, when I was doing residency, you don't have a lot of time to review right. the literature, and I think that you know, during like rounds, they, they will cite a lot of studies and right. you just take their word for it, for it to be true. And I think that there's some sort of like you know, confirmation bias sometimes when they pull certain studies, but they don't pull other studies or they don't give you like a balanced view of, okay, there's a po- There's so many positive studies. Also, there's some negative studies, but we won't talk about that. And then, um, I think that there is this kind of cultural dynamic that happens in, 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 in medicine and in residency training where we Sort of just we're, we're all apprentices of this master doctor right. and then we per- continue to perpetuate things that we've learned and you know we, we don't we're not gonna necessarily look at the literature again if doctor so-and-so said it's true you know low-fat it's, it's, yada yada right
1: exactly and that's the thing so you know, in science you're taught, never trust what you can prove. And there's nothing a young scientist, I would think, would like more than to embarrass his mentor by proving his mentor wrong. Right. And the mentor, you know, that that's just the nature of science. It's like you're constantly supposed to be challenging everything you believe. Right. Again, it... You know, this Feynman line, first principles, you must not fool yourself, and you're the easiest person to fool. So you're constantly asking yourself, Am I fooling myself? My mm. mentor fooling me? You know, it's like trust the data, think, don't trust the science. I think medicine
0: is like this weird amalgam of science yes, yes but it's also like you're you're, you're a practitioner like they're teaching well, to be a, a, an operator a mechanic on the human body it's
1: mean, going to sound radical but is it any more is science any more involved in medicine than it is in plumbing for instance where you also have to learn about you the know a lot of, of technical the concepts in order to do your yeah, job but and... you're not taught to think like a scientist and i Dated doctors in my youth, and at least two of them used to make fun of PhDs. They called them fuds. You know, it's sort of it's a different mindset. So that's part of it. The other part of it, the answer to your question is that, you know, you're asking the question why. Why should I believe this? And especially you guys, like you clearly believe something else now. So and when I'm writing about it, I have to understand why everybody doesn't believe this. Right. And when, to answer the question why everyone doesn't believe this, you have to understand why the people who believe it believe something differently, right. believe that which means going back to the evidence that they use. So you just keep going back in
0: time. So you had so I guess you, know, you sort of just grew up with this instinctive don't fucking trust people sort of question everybody. My, yeah, and then you're kind of like okay, let's keep well, you know, I'm scared. Like, no, that no, come it's also from, right? my first book. Okay.
1: okay, so my first book, I lived at CERN, the, the physics right. lab outside Geneva. That, that now they have this large hadron collider, and they discovered yep, yep. the Higgs boson, or they say they did. Um, so my first, I was embedded with this team of 150 very smart physicists. We didn't call it embedded back then, but I was living at the lab. I was hanging out with the physicists. I was living on, you know, for 10 months, and I watched them discover non-existent fundamental particles, and then try to figure out why, whether these things really were real when they finally concluded they weren't. And the head of the experiment was this kind of Machiavellian uh, Nobel laureate. He won the Nobel Prize when I was there eh, for earlier work that was mostly wrong. (laughs) And um, he was also something of a pathological liar. So his conception of the truth was what he could get you to believe that would further his cause at the moment. And if you called him on something and said, oh, that's not true, you know, clearly it's not true, he would go, yeah, that's a good point. Then he would take a step back and give you some other false fact or alternative Mm. fact that he thought he could get you to believe, regardless of what anyone else in the experiment had said. So once you'd been lied to as a young man by a Nobel laureate physicist over and over and over and over over again, you tend not to trust anyone. And one of the, the lines in this book, Nobel Dreams, I... While I was at the lab, I also took some breaks and I went around the, the, to the us and other labs in Europe, and I interviewed physicists there to get their perspective on this experiment and There was another Nobel laureate at Fermi Lab, uh, a guy named Leon Letterman um, wonderful the physicist, very funny too, and he he told me in all honesty, he said, "I like to go around the lab at night and talk to the graduate students because they haven't learned how to lie yet."
0: You know, and they're actually and, doing all the work. They're yeah. they're seeing the raw data. They're seeing and
1: the, the other <laughs> dynamic at CERN at this first experiment was that um, there were sort of two groups of physicists. When I got there, so this physicist was already claiming that he was on to this great breakthrough. So when I got to CERN and started hanging out with the physicists, there was, there was this old older group of physicists from like uh, sort of. Uh, mid-level universities in Europe and England who had actually built the detector themselves with their bare hands. So they were all too aware of how the detector could fool them. And there were actually technicians, you know, paid for at the laboratory who had built the detector with their bare hands. And they were aware of all the ways this device could fool them. And then there were all these sort of young hotshots from Harvard and Stanford who flew in to do the analysis. Once this guy had done the work to that would already earn him the Nobel Prize, they wanted to be in on this new discovery and they were doing the analysis and they hadn't built the equipment with their bare hands. So they didn't think in terms of how it could fool them. They just thought of, they looked at sort of the signal and ignored the background. So you had this dichotomy in the experiment and the Nobel laureate only wanted to listen to the young kids because they were telling them about this great discovery where these older people are a constant source of irritation and frustration to them they were like downers man they were saying (laughs) you know oh it's believe me our equipment is fooling us you don't understand it like occasionally a a a tau particle can get lost between the the photo tubes don't think it's always getting you know So again, you're aware that there's a sort of that what the investigators say, and this from my earliest work, from what the investigators say and how they spin the data, it might be entirely different than what the graduate students are going to say about other people who actually did the work. So this was just how I was programmed. And when I got to the cold fusion fiasco, you had the same scenario where you had these principal investigators, these, you know, famous chemists or or uh, materials engineering people spinning the data while their graduate students were going, Oh my God, how do I get out of here? Right. Like how do I get my PhD and get to another lab where <laughs> I don't have to do this crap because right. it's clearly wrong. Um and that was my training. So once I got into nutrition, uh being There's no
0: holy totems, you were just ready to just slash down anything that just didn't, it's, didn't help it's us
1: really gotta be de- Yeah, there's another great line from Feynman uh, where he says that science isn't about proving what's right or wrong. It's about proving what's most likely to be right. Right. And there's another aspect of physics that I brought to my nutrition research, which is that the physicists, you know, when nutritionists, public health people, they talk about a a meaningful effect, they use a 95% confidence level, right? Right. Which means it's got a 5% chance of not having been... uh, I, it's always hard to say this without some biostatistician um, getting angry at you. But let's just say the criteria that a physicist will believe for a meaningful result that's likely to be right is about one, 100,000 100, times as strict. Right. And the thinking is that unless you see a huge whopping effect, you can't really believe it's true. Right. And this is in physics, which where you have these beautifully clean systems and yeah, like you know, every sigma, particle's six, sigma alike. Sigma out, right? It's, it's like got to be five point, sigma. Yeah, some, That's yeah. the point as opposed to Nine one five, sigma. Yeah, right. um, actually, one of the joke titles in my first book was called Nobel Dreams, but one of the joke titles was going to be three sigma from Stockholm because the yeah. physicists would say a three sigma result, which has a, you know, it's got a, like one one-thousandth possibility that, that standard it's... standard
0: deviation if there's a normal distribution. Yeah. yeah. It's like basically by random chance, like one out of ten thousand, one out of one thousand possible yeah. But
1: yeah. The, the physicists had an unwritten rule it was called the Vernon Hughes Law of Physics and yeah. Vernon Hughes was a bio a statistician at Yale and the law was that uh, it's uh, three sigma results wrong half the time. <laughs> yeah. You know? So imagine how wrong a one how frequently a one sigma anyway this was It makes my...
0: sense, right? Like if there's five yeah. percent chances random noise, that's literally like yeah, one out of twenty, which is like not
1: But it's not only that. The the, the point is, it's not the random noise you're worried about. Right. It's all the, in the physics, it's the artifacts. It's the way that your machine fools you. Mm. And when you're looking at parts per billion events, you're also looking at parts per billion noise, artifacts, random fuck ups, you know, uh, and the equipment. And in, Nutrition—it's confounders. It's right. what else are these people doing when you're measuring X? Like one of my favorite examples—a uh, uh, epidemiologic study that claims that uh, uh, French fries are the most fattening food there is. Because you look at the population of people and what they like to <laughs> eat, and you look at the weight they gain. The people who eat the French fries are end up gaining the most weight. But then you could ask yourself, like, who eats French fries? Hmm. Like people go to fast food restaurants, right? right? Or Bel- who go to Belgian restaurants, right. but we'll leave the Belgians out for the moment, you right. know? So our French fries... Is it fries- correlation or causation? That's yeah, the big Yeah, our French fries is just a marker right. for going to a fast food restaurant, which is a marker for socioeconomic status, lack of health consciousness, and a gazillion other things yep. that can all explain. So if the French fries were a five sigma effect... I would start to worry, right? And right. I think and I'm not eating french fries. I don't anyway, clearly. But, you know, but <laughs> okay. if it's basically you're looking at one sigma is your you know, criteria yeah. by which you're judging, there's no way right. that an d- epidemiologic study can discern that yeah. with accurately because of all these confounders. So. 100%. You,
2: Actually, I think that one of the interesting things about uh, the Good Calories, Bad Calories book is that you go into the historical perspective um going back to the 1850s <clears throat> till 1960s and can you just kind of march out like where it kind of went all wrong like how did we become so i don't know like in the 1977 we had the food guidelines and then we became yeah. dogmatic about like low fat right. and but then prior to that two decades you know ansel keys and you know right. I, one of the things i realized when i was reading your book was that you know my eyes were open to the fact that medicine nutrition wasn't black and white like we didn't already know everything yet that there are actually sort of like political parties. There's like the carbohydrates is bad party. There's the fat is bad party. And then, you know, whoever is the most passionate or the most, you know, able to convince is the one that kind of wins and the winners are the ones that kind of dictate history and decide what, what happens. So I think what's interesting is if you can kind of walk us through why, first of all, like why nutritional science is so difficult to, you know, come to conclusions and also, you know the historical you know history and how we got to where we are today
1: okay so by, to do that i'm going to go further back i'm going to go yeah, back to the okay. very the very beginnings of um modern nutrition so modern nutrition if you were to buy a nutrition history book in the 1930s it's going to date modern nutrition to the late 1860s when german researchers create room-sized calorimeters okay so they could measure the energy expenditure of you know, dogs or humans. That's yeah. the way we
2: do the resting metabolic rate and the VO2 max, right? Yeah, yeah, someone? but
1: now you're doing it in a room so they can walk around, they can sit down, they can sleep and get 24-hour energy expenditure. And measure, so,
0: By measuring your heat.
1: By or, measuring, well, uh, you know, oxygen. CO2, okay, oh, okay, yeah, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. okay. So from the 1860s to the 1920s, all of nutrition science is about Measuring, And you can measure the caloric content of foods. You can see what happens with vitamin when you remove the vitamins and minerals or feed animals, vitamin and mineral deficient foods, or fiber deficient foods, or protein deficient foods. So they're looking at uh, vitamin and mineral deficiencies. And then you can measure, now you can measure calories that people expend. So this is where the streetlight is. We're back to the drunk and the streetlight. The streetlight is calories, vitamins, minerals, fiber, protein. That's okay. it. That's all of nutrition science. So by the early 1900s, when nutrition people start thinking about obesity, and the physicists have been working on the laws of thermodynamics, and they've demonstrated that the laws of thermodynamics hold for humans as well as um, uh, inanimate objects using calorimeters. And so they come up with this theory that obesity is caused by taking in more energy than you expend.
2: Calories in, calories out.
1: Calories yeah. in, calories out, and this goes back to the first one who I saw voice it sort of as a technical theory, as opposed to a kind of, you know, gluttony and sloth version right. of the theory. Was a, a, you know, German diabetes specialist named Carl von Norden in the 1900s, and he, that's how he thinks. And again, this is now moving into medicine. So even medicine tended to be dogmatic back then. Right. But by 1920, we've got the calories in, calories out, energy balance thinking, because that's what we can measure. It's all we can measure. So when it gets to sugar, the subject of my new book, it's like when we say sugar is empty calories, empty of vitamins, minerals, fiber, protein, and calories. It's science circa 100 right. years ago, man. Right. And science has changed. So beginning like 1920, I always forget if it's 21 or 22, with the discovery of insulin and then growth hormone. And so you start getting these real understanding, particularly in Germany and Austria, where the fields of endocrinology, metabolism, uh, nutrition, genetics are all pioneered. And the Germans and Austrians were sort of, you could think of science as being honed to a fine edge. Like if I were to ask you guys to name me five famous physicists, you know, they Schrodinger, Planck, Heisenberg, yeah, Einstein, Einstein, you know, right. they're all basically Germans, Austrians, half of them sure. are Jews, you know, but these guys knew how to do science and it's not an easy thing to do when you've got to have a culture that really teaches you the science. So by the late 1930s, the Germans and Austrians come to the conclusion that clearly uh, obesity is a uh, Meta- hormonal metabolic defects just got to be. Like you look at how people get fat. Men and women get fat differently. That tells you hormones are involved. You know, boys and girls go through puberty differently. It tells right. you hormones are involved. You know, people get fat in different places on their bodies and that tells Otherwise, you.
2: Otherwise we'd all look di- look the same but because the of the same. hormones we have certain distribution patterns.
1: Yeah and those distribution patterns tell you that one way or the other hormones are regulating whether a cell is going to take up fat or not. It's just not, not just some passive acceptance of extra calories because then every cell would do it mm-hmm. and if the cells do it differently between men and women clearly that's a hormonal regulation that you know Men don't put on fat in their hips, women do. Boys, when they're young, tend to get fat in a very sort of female way. And then when they go through puberty and they're infused with massive doses of testosterone, that female distribution leans out. And if they stay fat, it becomes more of a male distribution. It's clearly hormonally regulated. So obesity on some level has to be a hormonal regulation issue. And that theory vanishes with the Second World War. So. Pre-World War II, the lingua franca of science is German. If you want to do serious science anywhere in the world, you better be able to read German. Ideally, you can speak it so you could go study and mentor with these people. Post-World War II, it's English. Then we want nothing to do with these people. (laughs) So that theory evaporates.
0: Interesting. Do you think that was an effect of World War II? Okay, like German, dogma, Nazi, bad. Bad, yeah. It's funny because when
1: I was, my first book, living in Geneva, doing this physics experiment these european physicists used to say to me the best thing that ever happened to american science was hitler because <laughs> he drove all these brilliant european scientists mm. to the u.s and right. in physics we embraced them we had bombs to build and the cold war to fight you look at the manhattan project it was dominated right. by european jews right. who were trying to save their homeland yeah you know um in public health, we wanted nothing to do with these people. In medicine, we wanted nothing to do with these people. A story I was told by a reliable source is that Ivy League universities had protocols in place in the post-war years so they wouldn't be overrun by Jewish academicians. Interesting. And, okay, so, and one of the reasons Cal Berkeley is such a great university is because they embrace these people. Huh. So this is the kind of, you know, post-war, the, again, the lingua franca of medicine is now English. These people are not going to read the German language right. literature. They're not interested. They hated the Germans. They fought the Germans. So you have this sort of creation based on the thinking of one dogmatic uh, University of Michigan researcher that obesity is just about eating too much and expending too little and fat people are lazy and they just don't if if They don't they're not willing to eat less. It's because they're ignorant. You know, I mean, it's it takes a It takes a physiological defect and it turns it into a behavioral problem, right? And by the 1960s obesity is being uh, research in the u.s and being done mostly by psychologists and psychiatrists right. yeah why so, was the drive
0: from like michigan to pump this like psychological basis of obesity rather than like a hormonal cause basis because it
1: seems simple and back then they didn't i mean literally most physicians didn't really understand what right. hormones were how they worked okay. what the, what it meant what a hormonal and they didn't they had the simplistic concept of how to do science Again, so they pounced on simple answers. A simple answer was fat people eat too much, Right. you know. And look at them; you could see them. They're hungry all the time, right? Therefore, they're eating too much. And it's
0: very easy to again measure calorimetry, right? Like too yeah. many of this coming in and out, and it makes sense from like a physics thermodynamics yeah. perspective. Okay.
1: And but you have to go beyond that perspective. So. And
0: then the counter school from Germany basically was squelched because it just evaporates. Yeah. Okay. So
1: then what happens 1960 uh, Rosalind yellow and Solomon Burson create the radio immunoassay. So for the first time in history, you've got something new you can measure in endocrinology. Now you can measure hormones in the bloodstream accurately. And you can also, in '56, three different labs came up with a way to measure triglycerides in the bloodstream accurately instead of just cholesterol. Until then, it had been cholesterol, right? Now you can measure triglycerides. Uh, you can measure hormones within five years. We know exactly what hormones are regulating fat accumulation for the most part. And it's all dominated by the hormone insulin. And we've started to understand all the metabolic abnormalities that associate with heart disease. So now you have this alternative hypothesis working from the Germans and Austrians, even though these people don't read that literature. They don't even know it existed. (laughs) But you've got a hypothesis. If you raise insulin, you're going to raise fat accumulation. And so the 5 one of a weight loss diet better be a diet that lowers insulin, okay? And the way to do that is to remove carbs and keep protein moderate and boost the fat. Yeah, things that don't spike insulin. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, but now you're running directly into another dogma pushed by the bad scientists, the right. Ancel Keys, Dietary fat causes heart disease. Saturated fat causes heart disease. So if you're going to push a low-carb diet based on the, basically, endocrinology, the medicine, right. biology, you're pushing a diet that the community is beginning to think causes heart disease. I
0: think probably, like, as this uh, Ansel Keys sort of carb, you know, carbs are good, fat is oh, bad movement is going, a lot of companies started, like, doubling down on making products or making a lot of money off of food products that are are in that dogma, right, which I think is an accelerant on why this one school of thought really just monopolizing ideas, right? Well,
1: and there's another. It's funny by the 70s. So in the 60s, a series of tests are started to see if you restrict saturated fat, replace it with mono and polyunsaturated fats, whether you'll save lives. The answer is they have no idea. You know, some studies, <laughs> yeah. maybe other studies, yeah. maybe not. It's certainly not a quick fix. And right. there's at least one huge study that shows that you get more deaths if you boost the saturated, lower saturated fat. So they launched two huge studies.